Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. My loving people, we have been persuaded by some that are careful of our safety to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes for fear of treachery. But I assure you, I do not desire to live to distrust my faithful and loving people. Let tyrants fear. I have always so behaved myself that under God I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and goodwill of my subjects. And therefore I am come amongst you, as you see at this time, not for my recreation and disport, but being resolved in the midst and heat of the battle, to live and die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and my people, my honor and my blood, even in the dust. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too and think foul scorn that Palmer or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm, to which rather than any dishonor shall grow by me, I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general judge and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. I know already for your forwardness you have deserved rewards and crowns, and we do assure you on the word of a prince they shall be duly paid. In the meantime, my lieutenant-general shall be in my stead, than whom never prince commanded a more noble or worthy subject, not doubting but by your obedience to my general, by your concord in the camp, and your valour in the field, we shall shortly have a famous victory over these enemies of my God, of my kingdom, and of my people. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Away, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and feeble woman. 
These are the things that made England. And the King of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello and welcome to the Things That Made England. Uh, this is the podcast where we discuss things that made England and decide whether they should go into the cabinet or not. And today we have a very, very special um, presenter and who I will allow to introduce himself. Uh, my name is David Crowther. I am, uh, uh, I am a podcaster and I'd like to apologise for that. And I've been very lucky to be invited on here as a guest for this very special show by Luke. So thank you, Luke. Well, it's a great pleasure. It's your show, really. So uh, it's a less of a guest. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm feeling um, like a guest today, you know. What else? Yeah. And uh, so tell us what you're going to be talking about today. What's your thing that made England? Right. I am, I have come on. Actually, I'm not. My name is not David Crowther. I am actually William Cecil Lord Burley. And oh. I am here to talk, talk about my mistress for... 40 years i don't mean that in a sexual sense obviously my mistress good queen bess or luke is it bad queen bess should she be in the cabinet or outside the cabinet and she's in the cabinet is the room for her and can she breathe in there Uh it must be getting quite tight in the cabinet by now well nobody's ever said how big the cabinet is yes it's yes. got Dunkirk in it, which is going to take up quite a lot of space, I think. Oh, God, it's got Dunkirk in it. So have, they, have we diffused the bombs? I hope so, yeah. And lots of sweaty teenagers as well. As well which oh, God, the youth and culture thing. Like. I mean, yeah. that's poor. I mean, youth and culture, surely that's an eximerant. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, right. Uh, no, um, in, in your great tradition, I see you're, you're uh, proposing one of the bleeding obvious topics, uh, which I think uh, yes. Royfield might have pointed out before. Actually, that's, that might be quite rude, what you've just said there, isn't it? I think it is. you know, here I am, a guest, coming on to this show <laughs> out of the goodness of my heart, and I just get insulted. I know. I'm terribly, terribly sorry. Oh, yeah. well, actually, it was your idea anyway <laughs> that we did Queen Elizabeth first. Yes, good point. Mm. I think I've, I've definitely been mining the bleeding obvious myself, so I can't really criticise. Yeah, it is important. You know, we don't want to don't want to upset anybody here. Yeah. Right. Well, look, yes, I am proposing good Queen Bess, um, as she's known to Protestants, probably not to people like Nicholas Sander and John Gerard and that kind of people who got, you know, totaled. Um, so, uh, I, why don't I introduce? Good Queen Bess, although presumably everybody knows who she is. I mean, if anybody's listening from the good old US of A, or I don't know, Ulan Bator, um, does everybody know Good Queen Bess? Ulan Bator, maybe a bit less, but um, yes. I'm sure that most listeners to uh, the things that made England would have heard of Queen Elizabeth at one point. Yes. The first we're talking about, not our she own. Is a bit of a, she is a bit of an icon, isn't she? I mean, yeah. um, you know, when you have those conversations about who is the best king and queen of England, um, it's a toss-up, basically, between two monarchs, isn't it, Luke? Who are those two monarchs? Victoria? Who? Or... Okay, Edward III? Victoria who? Edward the what? <laughs> Come on. Oh, you're not going to say Henry VIII, are you? No, Alfred I'm not going to say Henry VIII. Look, I want to live. Alfred, Alfred the Great. Thank you. And... Finally got there. Could have been a while. 
finally got there, yes. Yeah. And Elizabeth first, you know, is the yeah. other one. So it's golden age. Um, so was the king of Wessex rather than the king of England. They'd be picky. Uh, well, no, it's a fair point, I suppose. I suppose, but you know, on on honorarily, honor honorably, or whatever, we make we make him king of England, or I do anyway. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, why should good Queen Bess? So two sort of rubrics about Bess, because uh, I mean, for most of the time, her reputation was set by started off by a chap called William Camden, who's an antiquarian in the early 17th century. Um, and he sort of set this image of Elizabeth as rather cold and calculating, but, you know, a great queen, intelligent and all the rest of it, and, you know, on top of policy, and who, uh, you know, a, a magnificent monarch. And that, and there's a little bit of variation about that, but that basically goes on until, I don't know, the mid-20th century. Um but then more recently, historians have begun, you know, because historians these days, you know, if you're going to get on, you, you have to be, you have to be arsy, don't you? Yeah. You know, there's no point yeah. agreeing with everybody. You have to say, oh, you know, X, Y, and Z is rubbish. And you, you know, you thought it was good, but in actual fact, it's rubbish. So people started doing that. Um, so you've got these two sort of narratives. Uh, and, you know, I'm not talking about just about Queen Bess. I'm talking about her reign. So... Um, well, we should start with Seller and Yateman, shouldn't we? Should we start with Seller and Yateman? Where else would we start? Not everyone might know who they are. Do you want to give a potted? Wait. 1066 and all that. And it was a, it was a, it was a piss take from, I don't know when they published it, actually. But it was a Mickey take on the Whig version of history, which is basically yeah. about the linear progression from, you know, bestiality to um did i say bestiality you know what i mean um, yeah i don't mean bestiality because that would be rude yeah. anyway you know from a animal state to the height of civilization that was the british empire discussed indeed and so that has been was debunked by a chap called herbert butterfield and uh seller and yateman uh, sort of riff off that, you know. It's a, and also what it's like doing history at school, you know. Um, everything's everybody's a good king or a bad king. So uh, Elizabeth, uh, although this memorable queen was a man, she was constantly addressed by her courtiers by various affectionate female nicknames. Uh, she also very graciously walked on Sir Walter Raleigh's overcoat whenever he dropped it in the mud, and was in fact every respect a good and romantic queen. Which I always think is rather good because, you know, we have all those debates of the Irish say, oh, you don't know anything about Irish history and, you you know, you pooed on us for 600 years and you just don't know and why country you pooed on us and we didn't know anything about it. Basically, Sarah Yeatman agrees that 90% of school children remember about four things. Yeah. Uh, at the level of picking up Walter, stepping on Walter Raleigh's cloak. Yeah. But anyway, let's not get into that one because I'll get into trouble. I've probably got into trouble already. So there are these two narratives uh, and about her reign. Um, it's, the, it's the golden age. It's the start of exploration, which would lead to the British Empire at the time, thought to be a great thing. Um, the defeat of the attempted invasion by the evil and slightly mad Philip II of Spain. The defeat of the, the Armada by the uh, kamikaze by the glorious wind, by our plucky boys, the national and glorious pirates, 
Drake and Hawkins, a happy successful reign that saw England transformed from a small irrelevant island off the northwest coast of uh, the continent to a superpower. Three cheers for good Queen Bess. Hip hip. All right. Hip hip. All right. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Just two hips. So that's that's one narrative. The other narrative is, uh, you know, now nowadays there's a lot more focus on the fact that what Hawkins was doing in the uh, uh, Atlantic was trying to muscle in on the uh, slave trade. And yeah. although he had sold 300 slaves, he didn't show a lot of um, contrition about the idea of selling human beings. Drake, funnily enough, does actually. Funnily, but there you go. Um, and the look, you know, it was the weather that did for the Armada. The, basically, we peppered them with with cannonballs, and all they did was stick in their uh, stick in their hulls, and they kept going. The court was written, riven by faction. You know, William Cecil versus Robert Dudley versus um, you know Walsingham and uh, Christopher Hatton, all the rest of it. And by the end, Elizabeth was chronically indecisive. You know, she was. Um, she wouldn't make her mind up about the succession. Poor old Cecil goes nutty trying to get her to make a decision. Have you ever had a really indecisive boss? Uh, no, I don't think I have. Right. Well, I yeah. have. Yeah. And it's a nightmare. Um, <laughs> I kind of feel for old uh, little Cecil. And the idea is that the 1590s was actually full of famine and plague and that uh, by the time she died, what she'd done is sort of bury problems under the carpet. And yeah. those problems, especially about religion, came back to haunt us. Yeah. Am I actually stealing your thunder here? No, no, not at all. No, no, no. I was going to just ask you to, to give your own. So where do you fall on that uh, argument? Um. I think we've we've gone in and out. I mean, one of the very interesting things about Elizabeth, she keeps bringing up new topics for us to think about. You know, she, she doesn't stand still. So these days, of course, we think a lot more about gender. What was yeah. it like uh, ruling as a woman? And we've got this this extraordinary situation where we have three female rulers: um, Mary the First and Elizabeth the First, and Mary Queen of Scots. Um, and they all deal with that problem of gender in some different ways and some similar ways. Um, and it's the they question were, really. They were the sorry. first queens of, of England. They were the first queens of England and indeed Scotland. So, um, yeah. you know, they were, they were treading where nobody else had. And the, the rubric, of course, of, you know, the great, um, uh, the great something of being, whatever, I can't remember what the phrase is, but, you know, you, God handed down authority directly to the head of the family, the man. Yeah. And everybody was subordinate to that. And then suddenly you've got a queen, you know, telling everybody what to do and how do people cope and the problems of marriage and women supposed to be. So there's, there's all that and how those three women cope with that. Um, so what that's in that, I'm not answering the question about where I, where I end up. I think, uh, there's another narrative which says that Elizabeth isn't really in control. It's her privy council, Cecil, Walsingham, Leicester. They're really the people in control who make the decisions. I think that one's been kicked into touch a bit. Um, so I think where I land up is that she doesn't always win the battles with William Cecil. She doesn't always win the battles. That, uh, uh, what, what are those battles? So, for example, Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, yeah. 
Elizabeth was desperate not to kill Mary's Queen of Scots. And actually, Elizabeth was quite keen that she succeed. Um, because Elizabeth thought in dynastic terms. Yeah. Rather than Cecil and Walsingham and Leicester, who talk about in terms of religion. For them, the fact that Mary Queen of Scots was a Catholic was a deal breaker. Yeah. Um, for Me for Elizabeth, that was a bit of a problem, but it was by no means a deal breaker. Right. So she is criticised all the way through Elizabeth um, for not making a decision about the succession. And there's a decision. So was she indecisive or was she doing that for a reason? And what she says is, look, I'm not going to make a decision about the succession because whoever I name as the heir will become the centre for uh, rebellion and, um, uh, and and revolt against me. And indeed, Mary, Queen of Scots was a focus of revolt, you know, yeah. Norfolk, the Rodolfi plot, Norfolk's revolt and uh, the Great Northern Rising. Um, so she's kind of right. And when we look at, in terms of her refusing to get married and apparently being very indecisive about that, sorry, am I boring you, actually? I'm rabbiting no, on that. No, I love it. Okay. Uh, so she refused to get married. And if you look at Mary, Queen of Scots, takes the approach of getting married, um, and she has a terrible time. You know, I mean, good decisions on the marriage front, does it? Well, I mean, yeah, maybe. There are again two ways of looking at that. She was essentially betrayed by people, yeah. wasn't she? I mean, you can take different, different views and say, look, she was an idiot and she made the wrong decisions about the people, um, or she was unlucky, actually, more likely. Um, or you can say, look, she was really sold short by the people that um, she should have been able to trust, um, yeah. and she was probably raped by her third husband, Bothwell. Um, and she's she's got lots of talents and all the rest of it, but she's basically really unlucky with the men about her. Well, then, yeah. you, can argue, then you can also argue that Mary Queen of Scots doesn't do what, what Elizabeth does and, and if, use the majesty of the monarchy if, as effectively as she, she should. Yes. Because in a way... About... Sorry. Carry on. Now, I was going to ask about Elizabeth's um, own religion. I mean, what, what's your take on that? Because it was so crucial at the time. What you know, whether you're a Protestant yeah. or well, Anglican or or Catholic, and and you know, she was a well, she did try to sort of be slightly ambivalent about the whole thing, didn't she? Um, yes, I mean, of course, I'm not a deeply religious person, and it's very, it's quite. It's quite fun reading about this in a way, in a slightly mean way, because she sends everybody absolutely bonkers. I, I mean, to be honest, the, what's known least about is the, the majority, the 80% in the middle, who just go to church, um, sit and chat with their neighbours, sit through a really long, boring sermon and give their, their son a clip around the ear hole because he's emptying the the hassocks of their straw yeah that's a little that's a little personal autobiography bit there, <laughs> the um, uh, so actually we don't know very much about them actually but on one hand you've got the catholics and the other hand you've got the puritans and the puritans are livid with elizabeth because 
she will not go fast enough for them. What they think is when the Act of Settlement happens in 59, is that, oh, that's just the start of it. We'll keep making these these changes or get better and better and we'll end up like Geneva and John Calvin. Uh, and the Catholics, of course, um, well, are pretty much irreconcilable, but, um, you know, you get these, ch- they get the church papist who conforms because all Elizabeth asks of you, I'm not asking the question, but I will answer the question. All Elizabeth asked of her subjects was that they conform. They go to church and they are part of a national church. What they believe in their hearts and what they do in their own personal chapels or whatever is mm. up to them. And she will, so in, Nicola, in Francis Bacon's uh, famous phrase, she resolved not to make windows into men's souls. And she's quite strong on that. She sticks with her settlement all the way through the realm, despite massive presses to change it from the Puritans. And um, and indeed her own bishops, um, and even after uh, Saint Bartholomew's massacre in France, the Ridolfi mm. plot, the Northern Rising, she vetoes a bill which in in 1572, which is about putting extra penalties on Catholics to keep them under control, sort of thing, because everybody's worried about the Catholics. Although the Catholics, in actual fact, proved to be extremely loyal. Yeah. Um, so she sticks with it, and she's. People have thought that maybe look, she's a she's an agnostic. You know, she's not really very religious, and I think people now have have agreed she's not agnostic. Like her dad, her her religion is a bit weird. She's not a theologian, <clears throat> and it's all over the place. And actually, quite a lot of Catholic modern Catholic historians like Eamon Duffy are very sneery about English Protestantism. You know, it's not really coherent. Ugh. Um, she tried to find a middle, middle way between something which was Protestant, and it was definitely Protestant. The 39 articles are uh, certainly Cal- Calvinistic and Lutheran. Yeah. Um, but with the physical form, you know, copes and hats and all the rest of it, and communion, the sort of some ceremony to try and keep the Catholics happy. She's okay, definitely Protestantly, though. Sorry? Did did that sort of pomp and ceremony keep the Catholics happy at all? Did that bring Catholics on board? We don't really know in the sense that by the end of her reign, at the beginning of her reign, more than 50% of English people were probably uh, Catholic. By the end of her reign, nobody can remember being Catholic. So that the number of people have managed to keep that going with the, all the Jesuits coming over and the, the Marian priests is relatively small. You know, maybe yeah. seven thousand people or something out of population of three and a half million. Um, so, uh, no, um, it. But what we don't really know is we know the recusants, the people who say, "Right, I'm sorry, I'm being separatist, and I'm going to tell everybody." We don't really know uh, the numbers of church papists, yeah. and there must be a lot of people who just went along. One of the things they do. Uh, for example, is the man goes along, the head of the family goes along to the church and all the rest of his household and his wife stay at home and bring up their children in the uh, in the Catholic faith. So you get this sort of, you know, he's, so he doesn't get fined because he's there in church, but the rest of the family are um, 
living up to the Pope's expectations. And would that be... So I think there's a... That'd be fairly obvious, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> what was going on if just the bloke was turned Maybe, up? Maybe. But then, but then this thing, there's this thing about in plain sight. So in Holland, for example, which I think is the first country which says, look, everybody's going to be able to do their... It's a Calvinist country, but we're not going to you know, shoot people for studying, for following their own faith. You have this, you have this thing where the, everybody knows that that isn't a house, it's a church, it's a Catholic church. Yeah. But nobody, but it's just a fiction. It's in plain sight. Everybody goes in, nobody calls them on it as a yeah. matter of policy. And again, as far as Elizabeth's concerned, you know, the Pope does this daft thing of excommunicating Elizabeth and ramps everything up and puts enormous pressure on Catholics not to conform and not to be church papists, not to be Nicodemites, as the phrase is. I think, Nicodemus, how good are you at your Bible? Not great. Well, I think he's an Old Testament character who uh, pretends not to be a Christian. But... Um, uh, you know, the Pope really ups the ante by excommunicating Elizabeth and telling the Catholics you can on no way go to any Protestant services. Um, and therefore, and then he, England falls out of Spain um, and it all goes downhill from then. And then you get a very difficult situation for Catholics where the fines are punitive. Um, in effect, um, and that's a very difficult situation for them. And for the, the gentry, um, they're taken away from their role in life. You know, some like yeah. people like Tom Tresham, their, their whole raison d'etre as being a, a noble is to serve their queen and their country and yeah. their community. And they're not allowed to do that because they're not allowed to be, if you don't go to church, you're not allowed to be a JP or a yeah. Lord Lieutenant or a local governor. But you so do you, get... You'd say she navigated that as well as she could have done that really you know she sat on the fence when she was able to and it was kind of yes. the pope who kicked it all off and that's when she started repressing catholics because um they were being incited to rebel against her yeah well i mean the thing is you know nobody knows that um you know looking back we can say actually the catholics stayed remarkably loyal and even but some don't, and there are enough assassination attempts and alarms and excursions uh, to, to make the point that actually it, there is a danger there, there is a risk there. Um, so I, she does very, she does, she is very firm in keeping that policy going as far as possible. And even at its, at its worst, the people she kills um, I say she, you know, Cecil, Walsingham, everybody, the Privy Council kills and tortures are the, the Jesuit and seminary priests who come over specifically to um, try and revive Catholicism in England. And you have to say, I mean, there's some extraordinary talented and very brave men like Edward Campion and John Gerard and uh, Robert Person, but they kind of knew what the risks were. And they were you fanatic. know, they, yeah, uh, you know, there are plenty of fanatics in religion on both sides, and they're fanatics. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's difficult. So the context is very different from Mary's reign, where it's very ordinary people who are getting burnt. 
um, in Elizabeth's reign, these guys are educated in order to go into England. And there is no difference in Elizabeth and the Privy Council's mind between religion, being a, being a Catholic and being disloyal and treason. Right. But I mean, and in, in comparison of numbers, I mean, compared to Mary, how many people were executed in, in Elizabeth's reign? Um, there's 280, about 284 in Mary's reign. And it depends how you count them. So if you're a Catholic historian, you count everybody Elizabeth looked at who, who then had a gammy leg. Sorry, I exaggerate for effect. Uh, but, you know, you count rebels who were clearly yeah. rebels. Um, um, uh, and if you're a Protestant, you only count the priests actually killed for being, you know, for coming into the, for not for treason, not for ordinary treason, but for religious purposes. And that's that number is ninety, right? And for so, and the, the bigger number, actually, the biggest, biggest number I've seen is two hundred. So, uh, but actually, the real point of comparison, you know, Mary reigns for what eight years or something like yeah. that. Uh, reigns forty-four. In the first ten years of Elizabeth's reign, and throughout Edward the reign, actually, no Catholic gets executed. Right. So that's definitely a sort of plus point in, in Elizabeth's favour on, on the religious front, you'd say? I think it's a, a plus point if you're like me and not particularly religious. Yeah. Uh, if you're an ardent Protestant, she's a bloody nightmare. And if you're a Catholic, we've got a Catholic down the road here at Stoner Park, one of the famous recusant families. And, you know, his eyes shine with pride at Robert Persons and Edward Campion. And, yeah. This is appalling. Elizabeth was a horrible butcher of uh, fine men. And why wasn't the toleration? Well, there was no toleration nowhere. Um, Elizabeth, for me, having spent time in Spain and spoken to Spanish people, it's uh, it's quite interesting hearing their point of view of Elizabeth, you know, particularly particularly Drake. Um, and you know, they they see her as fermenting rebellion in, in the low countries and generally causing the you know the great spanish empire uh, a yeah. great deal of grief um and you know she's definitely bad murdered um, yeah murdered mary and, queen of Scots. yeah um and of course you know the um the disapprobation of your enemies is always a compliment um i think i mean as far as drake is concerned you know we built this picture of this great patriotic uh seafarer and he's a glorified pirate, essentially. Yeah. <clears throat> but it is interesting to note that the Spaniards have no excuse for, the, have no, you know, they can't blame the Dutch Revolt on anybody else. No. You know, they went in, and I think the Duke of Alba produces the Council of Troubles, which gets called the Council of Blood. I think 1,200 people are executed in a couple of years. Yeah. You know, yeah. it makes, um, you know, it makes you realise just how successful Elizabeth was uh, keeping the lid on violence in yeah. terms of religious violence. Yeah. I don't have much time for Spaniards hating either uh, for Elizabeth. Drake, you know, a bit more of an argument. <laughs> Got a bit of a point. Yeah. He's... <laughs> Although, I mean, again, Philip um, plots, the Rodolfi plot, Philip agrees, and this is before 
the Dutch Revolt, actually. I know it is after the Dutch Revolt, but before England had got involved in the Dutch Revolt. And he agrees that Elizabeth should be captured and marry Queen of Scots, marry the Duke of Norfolk and become King and Queen of England. Yeah. So his hands aren't clean. Yes. Thank you very much. It's, um... <laughs> what they call it these days when they're, when they're changing the head of state, like with Saddam Hussein. Um, oh, I see. Regime change. Regime change, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The vicious. Uh, um... Yeah. So, what about her foreign policy? Where, where you know, the, the, obviously the big one is the Spanish Armada. Um, she can't really take too much glory for that, can she? It's just a bit of good luck. Um, well, there are. You know, one of the interesting things I learned is that there are three armadas. I know. Just as big as each other. I did not realise that at school at all. I only learned that a few weeks ago. Um, what about the uh, English armada then? Sorry? The English armada. Have you heard of that? I'd never heard of this. Yes, yes indeed. Which, <laughs> is a, which was as miserable a failure as the Spanish ones. Yeah, I, just the next year. Yeah. I literally found out about two weeks ago, 1789. Oh, no, no, sorry, so 1589, um, as dismal a failure, as you say, as the Spanish Armada. Um, yes. And, uh, yeah, but it's something that we just don't study at all, do we? we... Well, we lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, how stupid are we? Uh, um, so, uh, I mean, militarily, uh, Elizabeth, you know, um, she might have the... Uh, uh, heart and stomach of a of a king, but you know. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but it, you know, she's let down by her her military commanders. Essex, uh, so Leicester goes to oh, yeah. Warwick, gets half Fleur, and uh, gets his gets his ass kicked back. And uh, Essex, I think, goes somewhere and gets his ass. Did he go to Ireland? Back. Didn't get. He went to yeah, Ireland. But, got his ass yeah, kicked yeah. You know, the Armada is pretty much, and Old Drac and John yeah. Hawkins are really the only guys who do anything successful um, yeah. in, you know, of course, you know, obviously violence is always wrong. And, you know, people yeah. should have known that in the 16th century. Shame on them for not doing so. But, you know, they were great. And they gave the Spanish a kicking. Um, <laughs> I do love doing that. Because, you know, the Spanish still call it the Armada Invincible. So the, the invincible armada. Ah, is that right? Yeah, no, not totally invincible, was it, guys? You know, <laughs> at the bottom of the sea. That is a bit of a hoot, isn't it? Um, yeah. Good, invincible armada. Tenetri, uh, invincible. Exceedingly invincible. I mean, you do with you know the narrative, depending on who you are, tends to wonder. Oh, it was all the weather, but the point yeah. about it is actually that they were unable to pick up the troops and go yeah. back across and they're trapped in calais when the storm blows up and the fire ships make them cut their anchors and they're then at the mercy of the wind so they, it's not a failed anyway i mean they'd failed whether the wind came along anyway once they'd cut their anchors they couldn't stop and pick up the duke of Indeed, they were, yeah. they were at the so it's it's um you know it's yes it's the wind but um yeah. Uh, you know, they 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 make their own luck. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's basically. But apart from that, militarily, you know, it's no great shakes, um, yeah. except the um, uh, you know the glorious uh, 
uh, history of piracy. <laughs> Which reflects so well on us. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not speaking to Spanish, obviously. Um, <laughs> you can translate for me. So what else we about... Were, we were just nicking the gold that they just nicked off the poor old Native Americans. So. Yes, indeed. Yes, well, quite, you know... Yeah. It, it was who nicks the knicker indeed um um and we shouldn't be talking about knickers should we no. so uh one of the other th things that is thrown at um elizabeth is look you know her court was a nightmare um it was full of factions that lester hated cecil and cecil and walsingham were a team and hated everybody else christopher hatton was a you know it, it the idea was uh, certainly at one stage that um, uh, Elizabeth's court was like Henry VIII's, riven by faction and therefore dysfunctional. And again, that's one of those narratives that's been exploded, really, because you see Leicester and Cecil coming together over some things. Leicester is more Purita Puritan than Cecil, um, but Cecil is certainly very, very Protestant. Uh, Walsingham is much more Leicester's angle. The likes of Christopher Hatton, Walter Mildmayer, you know, different on the on the spectrum. But in actual fact, Elizabeth's government is incredibly stable. You know, yeah. there's um, it's very rare. I mean, certainly, you know, she doesn't do what a dad does and say, "Look, I've got this absolutely peerless advisors, Thomas Wolsey and then Thomas Cromwell." Tell you what, I'll cut their head off. Yeah. You know, she doesn't do that. She recognises the quality that uh, her privy councillors have, and they serve her very loyally, and they may disagree with her. And a couple of occasions, Cecil goes behind her back, but by and large, they respect the fact that she makes the decision, however infuriating it is to have to wait for that decision. And in terms of the indecisiveness, it's the hardest thing to do, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if you, again, thinking back to working life, the hardest thing in business to do is not to do anything, yeah. to wait. And I've often found that if you ignore a problem, you heard of Douglas Adams' <laughs> concept of SEP, yeah. somebody else's problem. Yeah. If you just decide a big, hairy problem is somebody else's problem and you're not going to deal with it, quite often it goes away. Yeah. But was she was she generally indecisive, or was this particularly about getting married? I think she played. I don't know the answer to that question. It's quite difficult to know what's in Elizabeth's head, to be honest. But, but, but we hear this indecisive thing a lot. But I mean, yeah. as far as I've seen, it's it's about the marriage thing. But I don't know. Or is, is it also she was indecisive about killing Mary Queen of Scots? Yeah, she's indecisive about certainly she's very indecisive about uh, killing Mary, Queen of Scots, and even tries to get people to smother Mary with a pillow so that in secret, so that she doesn't have to make the decision to kill another anointed monarch. Yeah, um, you know she's not like Oliver Cromwell as that. She never says this will not be done in a corner. She desperately wants somebody to save her from in a being responsible. Yeah. Um. And she's indecisive about killing the Duke of Norfolk. You know, people have to plead for, look, he's a rebel. He needs to die. And she doesn't want to do it. Um, and she's very indecisive. You know, people also, the convocation will say, oh, we want to make these changes to, to religion. And she say, hmm, yes, give me a moment on that. And then 10 years later, you know, you haven't <laughs> So you either think that she, 
I think she is indecisive about horrible decisions she doesn't want to make, like killing Mary Queen of Scots, executing the Duke of Norfolk. Um, but other things like the succession, for example, I think she says, well, look, I'm going to pretend I'm going to make a decision, and indeed marriage. I'm going to pretend to the people who are telling me you must make a decision. I'm going to pretend that I'm thinking about it, but I know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to name a, an heir. And you think that was definitely something that she had decided to do was to not have an heir that she she yes i think that, that she, i think she'd lose power by marrying and well not have an heir uh, has got two bits to it you know either yeah. not getting married i think after 1564 5 she decides she's not going to marry dudley and i think uh because dudley's wife in 1560 amy dudley dies in rather suspicious circumstances. And it, down the stairs or something like that. Yeah, exactly <laughs> that. Um, uh, yes, near, near your bit of the world, actually, and come to the place. Anyway, yeah. she... Um, and that kind of queers the pitch, you know, she can't really marry him after that, even if she was going to. And she probably doesn't completely reject the idea, but pretty much rejects the idea from then. Yeah. And then naming an heir is another thing. So, okay, so you're not going to have a... Uh, you're not going to have a baby um but who's your heir going to be and that she would not decide you know she would not what were the options uh Uh, well mary queen of scots was the front runner and once mary's queen of Scots is totaled actually um things become easier because her son jimmy is um is a prot yeah so and a bloke both of which are good things capital g capital t um (laughs) And um, but the other option was the Gray family. So in the in oh. Henry VIII's will uh, of 1544, the Stuarts had been written out of the will and said, "No, you're not having it. Um, it's the Grays." Hence, Lady Jane Grey and all the rest of it. Yeah. And Lady Jane Grey was in fact the rightful Queen of England, and Mary I was a usurper. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, as prescribed by Henry VIII. Uh, well, not as prescribed by Henry VIII, as prescribed by Edward VI, who changes the succession okay. to right. put Mary behind. Anyway, that's yeah. another story. Um, so, uh, so in terms of you know military, I think we can say she's not very clear about her strategy objectives. She intervenes when she has to. She basically tries to do things by money rather than uh, by you know boots on like- the ground. She's a yeah. bit William Pitt like, um, and uh, but you know the the venture she does make boots on the ground are miserable failures basically. Yeah, her dithering, I think, I think in some cases she definitely dithers, and it's you know she just can't make a decision. But in other cases, she uses it as a matter of policy um, and quite uh, effectively. We were talking about factionalism. Um, it's quite funny talking about the court because because you've got this problem. You've got a woman who's queen who's telling all these opinionated blokes who have been brought up to be the boss, and you suddenly got this woman. How do you get round that? You know, and what they do is they is she invents this elaborate court culture of banter and flirting and the traditions of courtly love. So the traditions of court love, which had gone out of fashion come back into Elizabeth's court and it's all at court and courtly love is all about the service of this unobtainable damsel 
cruel mistress, as it were. And well, that's perfect for this situation <laughs> because she's unobtainable. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, she gets a bit long in the tooth, but you know, nothing wrong with that. Um, and she bants and flirts, you know, for England. She's a real old bantosaurus. Um, and it it works. You yeah. know, that, that culture works. gets a bit weird when she's older because she clearly isn't a young, young maiden uh, that is the object of everybody's, you know, love and desire. But it gets, them, it gets the court over the hump of that gender problem. Yes. Yeah. And it becomes quite fun. Are you ready for my yeah. one zinger? Yeah, go for it. Um, yeah, because I, I was trying to sort of prepare a little bit, um, thinking I, I'm supposed to be sort of arguing the case against, um, and I didn't really come up with much, except that she kind of failed in that most basic of monarchical duties. I mean, you, what would you say is mm. one of the, the sort of the main uh, yeah, duties having, of a monarch? Is what? Yes, having an heir is obviously the um, yeah uh, one main duties of monarch. I think um, the, the dynasty, and uh, you know, I mean that that's a massive failure. And by so but doing, by no, she let yeah, the Scots in. So she is, yes. she, she, she's actually the end of England. She brought England to an end as an independent state. And yeah, only her, for a hundred years, then we kicked you, kicked you out again. <laughs> I'm not yeah. standing up for the Scots in this case, but you know. I mean, oh, come on, was, you're a mock jock. You were, yeah, I'm the most you know. mock jock of them all. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, that, it's quite, that, that, you know, in a way, she should be nowhere near the cabinet of things that made England because she unmade England. She destroyed it. She created this bastard kingdom of Britain, which is. Uh, well, she doesn't quite create Britain because no, it's just, it's, yes, you can under one crown. Um, I think, I mean, if you compare what she does to what Henry VIII does, Henry VIII ties the world in knots in order to produce an heir. Yeah. Um, what she says is uh, something on the lines of, you know, when I die, um, the successor will be chosen as of right. And do you know what? She's bloody right. Uh, James the James VI and first comes along and is actually... Uh, a pretty decent king. Again, he's a bloke. He's uh, he's Protestant, so he fits the bill. In fact, Cecil lines him up. So when he realises that um, that Mary Queen of Scots has gone, thank the Lord for that. Um, oh dear, Elizabeth isn't going to have a, ba a baby. Right, I'm going to sidle up to James um, James six and first, and he kind of grooms him when it happens, so that when it does happen, it happens smoothly. I mean, he yeah. isn't William isn't around by then, but Robert Cecil, his son, is. Um, he, does that all happen sort of behind Elizabeth's back, or is she? Uh, so you can't give her the credit for it, but you can give her the credit for saying, "Do you know what? I'm not going to go through all the dangers of marriage or rebellion, which are absolutely as risky as anything. Um, this is the route I'm going to take, um, and it'll all come out in the end. And do you know what?" She was right. They yeah. all come out in the end, you know. And, you know, personally, I'm delighted that the Scots had a hack at um, being monarchs of England. They were more fertile than the Tudors, but that's about all. <laughs> a bit more fertile. Well, they, of course, they came to an end in the end. Oh, well, no, you had the pretenders, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, the Scotland, yeah, yeah. or and indeed a small part of Scotland, desperately trying to, to impose a a failed dynasty on uh, on the poor old English. Uh, Anne was pretty good, actually. 
The what? Anne Stewart. She's pretty good. Anne, Queen Anne. Yeah. She was a last yeah. year. She was pretty good. Yeah. Charles second was okay. Bit of a, you know, James first. He was all right. Yeah. yeah. Charles the first, not so much. No. Charles first, no. not so much. Yeah. An idiot. But yeah. anyway, that's Stuart. Yeah. There was one other point I wanted to make. Yeah. Um, social reform. Okay. So doesn't normally get talked about. Elizabeth's reign is my, and indeed Europe in the late 16th century is is marked by a, a situation they're just not ready to cope with. It's marked by massive population growth, um, and it's marked by very high inflation. Um, there are vagabonds all over the place because they can't get jobs because um, there is there is massive competition for jobs because there are so many people, and so wages. Um, fall or go up very slowly meanwhile prices go up because there's you know a lot more pressure on resources so if you're landed actually it's a great time because you know prices are going up and your costs are actually going down so great if you're a husbandman or a yeoman or a gentry or a nobleman life's good but if you're a wage laborer this is a hideous time um what you get in get in England is the first publicly funded poor relief system. Now, these days, poor poor law is a bit of a a dirty phrase because we think of the the Victorian version of the f poor laws, and the Victorians were free market bastards. Um, you know, where everybody had to earn their keep. I mean, the poor law um, relief is not. It's not a gentle system either. Uh, vagabonds are forced to work and they're branded and because vagabonds just didn't exist in the medieval world. No. Because uh, everybody stayed in their parish. Um, so, and in the 1590s, you have this terrible famine and there's, um, you know, there's all these people all over the place. And in actual fact, for an early modern state, it works pretty well. I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of hardship, but there is this safety net now for the first time. Um, there is a system of social control, actually, which obviously is, you view more or less positively, depending on which which line, side of the line you side of the line you are. So, um, you know, if you're poor, you you find yourself in a system where if you if you kick up, well, maybe the the bosses of the parish won't give you that poor relief you were after. Right. Uh, but it provides a structure of social control and um, a conversation between all groups of society. Um, and basically, you get this system, I and mean, it's, it's lovely, actually. Um, the system is of Elizabethan government is, is being called um, government, parish government at the king's command. The parishes are like little, little republics. Uh, yeah. Uh, in England, it's described as a monarchical republic. And there is this feedback mechanism that goes through those local elites, through the court system, the assizes, the lord lieutenants, um, and the privy councillors who uh, are magnates in various counties, that actually affects policy at the centre. Mm. So you get this two-way conversation from the, from the 16th century, um, which... Uh, it's pretty unique. Yeah. So there and, you go. And, it, it, and unique to England. Was that? Yeah. And and was it something she was heavily involved in herself? Do you, do you know? No, I don't think Elizabeth, I think you'd be, be right to say that Elizabeth 
doesn't design a system. And I don't think anybody designs. I mean, the poor law is obviously designed and it's there are several acts along the way until it's kind of um, fully functional. Um, uh, so that's a conscious thing. But that's the like, you know, that's Cecil driving that rather than Elizabeth. Um, and they all, you know, that none of them design this sort of feedback mechanism, but they would all understand it. You know, they'd understand that they have to, the magnates and the JPs need to talk um, uh, to the parishes and they need to understand what the issues are and they need to bring that back to decision making or policy advice to the Queen at the centre. Yeah. So they knew the system. And uh, so, and that would have been more like William so, Parliament, who was designing that kind of thing. Yes, I mean, yeah, again, he definitely wasn't. Nobody was designing the system. This was, right. you know, the system that had grown up through the 16th century. Not the poor law was, but the, um, you know, this, the way that government worked. You know, JPs okay. were designed as a as a role back in Richard the First time actually, and sort of grew by Henry the Seventh's time. And Lord Lieutenants were introduced because we were crap at fighting. And, you know, things happen piecemeal. And it's not a question of saying, look, this is, we're going to design the system. But it is what happens. It is what yeah. falls out. So it's a it's bit a difficult to give people credit for it, um, to be brutal. But nonetheless, uh, it's a very effective system. Yeah. A JP is a justice of the peace. Yes, right? indeed. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So that's right. Um, so yeah. it's great. I mean, if you're, if you're laboring poor, it's not that great. And one of the features of Stuart, sorry, um, uh, 17th century England in particular, but also 16th century England, is a growing gap between uh, rich and poor, which right. yeah. was less stark. I mean, wealth inequality was just as stark in medieval times. But, um, you know, medieval England was a more closed system. You right. know, everyone yeah. had their role and there were responsibilities both ways. And it, you Basically, what you get is the beginning of a proletariat, I suppose. Um, you know, have to who have to work the system and have relatively little power. And so it begins. Yeah, so it begins. Yeah. The other thing, actually, which I should mention, is that I mean, what we've been talking about is nation formation. You know, that nobody talks about the state at the beginning of the 16th century. Um, Henry VIII is a monarch. He's a dynast. England is his. It belongs to him, and he rules it with advisors that he picks. Um, by the end, the word state is in common currency. There is this concept that there is this entity called the state, which is kind of almost independent of the queen. I mean, it's not independent of the queen, but you know, it exists of itself, um, yeah. and it kind of the queen has rights in it, but and you know, very strong rights but it exists of itself. Um, and the government structure has evolved. You know, the Privy Council is now embedded and the, the other roles like JP's parish government and all the rest of it has, has evolved. It is a coherent system. It is a nation which has a very strong sense of self. It is Protestant. It is the, the elect. It is chosen by God. Mm. And this, obviously this is a concept which we you know don't like today if we're you know, you're not going to be woke. It's a horrible thing. But at the time, <laughs> it gives uh, England a great sense of purpose. Yeah. Um, and, we'll, you know, we'll lead it to um, uh, great social 
cohesion. Everybody gathers around this idea of of England and its queen, Gloriana, as it were. Yeah. Which That's is why she's the thing that made she's the thing that made England then. I Indeed. think you made your case very coherently. Well, that, that, you've actually made it for me in that. I hadn't thought of that. But yes, you're <laughs> She creates a sense of England and yeah. that, that self-confidence and um, self-belief will last until decolonization, really, won't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, we should probably uh, just take a yeah. little break now to um, for our Facebook roundup um, oh, after encouraging people to come and visit our Facebook uh, group. Hello, Fiona here with the Social Media Roundup on the subject of public schools. We have had an extraordinary number of people joining us since we last spoke. 27 with some late commentaries and voting on past subjects such as the sun and youth cultures. We welcome you all and we invite you to jump in and comment some more. As for the vote on the proposal that the institution of public schools is a thing that made England, 59 voted for it to go into the cabinet, so off it goes, straightening its obligatory tie. 19 voted in the box which read, I cannot and will not vote for an institution that embeds the elitism that has such a nefarious impact on the country of England. Gordon Bennett, that is a mouthful. Who wrote that? A public schoolboy swat is my guess and five sat on the fence. The fence in this instance should be a very tall fence, like the one that surrounded my school, thus ensuring that those of us locked inside the boundaries went tearing out like randy bunnies at the end of each term in search of, well, thus efficiently ensuring the continuation of the species. There have been, thus far, 142 comments on public schools and some very lively discussions, especially between Tyrant and Stuart. Others, including Michelle, Rowena and Tony, posted pictures of their schools. Stephen Bowden admitted to attending the Free Grammar School of Sir Roger Chumley, Knight at Highgate, founded in 1565, subsequently shortened to Highgate School. And it was the school, we learned, where John Betjeman was taught by T.S. Eliot. Stephen commented, and look where that got us. Stephen then went on to say, I have to vote public schools into the cabinet, albeit as one of the more pernicious things that made England. Rowena Card, Wayne Reesing, and Steve Clotier got into a thick discussion along with Luke, which seemed to end with dropped mics and returned PhDs. All intriguing, if a little worrying. David shared a post on Worcestershire Source which led to a number of lively discussions between Eric Trometer, Tim Marsden, David and Rowena leaping in on Welsh Rabbit. Then Gavin Robbie, Liz Williams and Luke chimed in with a discussion on the Canadian National Cocktail, a device called the Caesar. Then just as things looked as if they might get completely out of hand, Eric posted a list. The list is entitled, Which of the Following is the Hardest for You to Say? Play along with me. Number one, I love you. That's easy. You say it to your children, your animals, and your prized delphiniums, and you try not to blurt it out to others, except maybe once or twice on your wedding day, preferably to the person you're marrying. Number two, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. This is really a two-parter. One says, clearly, I was wrong, 
as quickly as possible, but as seldom as possible. Sorry, on the other hand, is muttered with varying tones and meanings at least ten times a day, even to yourself, especially when you're all alone and you've been accidentally vulgar. Three, I need help. I find it very difficult to say. No, I couldn't even say it when dangling from a rope and carabiner on the edge of a precipice. What one does say in that situation is, I'm so sorry to inconvenience you, and I'm terribly sorry to make a fuss. Could you please tell my family that I died nobly? Four, Worcestershire sauce. Almost the second thing I taught my American-born grandchildren to say after they'd learned how to say sorry in four different tones. Five, I appreciate you. No, I'm not sure where I'd use that. Perhaps when speaking of an excellent glass of scotch? Or a really well-made gin and tonic? Or when saying, thank you for that list, Eric. I appreciate you. There is much to read and join in on and add to on our page. From people posting boastful pictures of their grand school chapels to interesting articles of prominent public schools closing, Michelle asking if there were requirements for admission to public school other than money. She then went on to ask, can a dumb as a doorpost rich kid still get into Eton? Michelle, I tell you that it's almost a requirement to be as thick as two short planks to get into most public schools. My ex-husband went to a very good school and he has a problem stringing three sentences together. But Luke would tell you that this has something to do with his links to Harrow. I do hope that those of you who are a little shy will leap up and comment. We do long to hear from you. And until we chat again, I hope you'll straighten your old school tie, do your Latin homework, and remember your school motto. Ours was Meliora Peto. I always give my best. And at the beginning of each term, the senior girls and prefects had to say this. I promise to serve my school and to place others above myself. Great. Well, um, thank you very much, David. Uh, have you got any last okay. words on, on, on our great queen that you'd like to mention uh, and why she should be definitely going in the cabinet? I, I have to say I completely voting for Elizabeth myself. Okay. Um, I think you made a great case for her. I think it's quite heartening, actually, to look at a historical figure and uh, who with a good reputation and not come away thinking, oh, my God, you know, it's all yeah. just been national, um, national jingoism and all the rest of it. You know, she's yeah. uh, it's a bit she's of impressive. Yeah. No, she's oh, great. there's a bit of that. Um, yeah, absolutely. But she's an, she's an impressive person. Indeed. Great. Well, thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Luke. Thank you for, you for the idea. And it was lovely to be back on TTME. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and feeble woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.